If you go back 100 years, the Argentine peso was the strongest currency in the world. The Argentine peso was bought with a 10% premium in the, the stock exchange of London. My grandfather used to be an ambassador in the British embassy of Argentina during the Second World War. And he told me stories about how the British came to the embassy desperately trying to buy Argentine pesos in exchange for the British pound. Like the Argentine peso for the first half of the 20th century was the Bitcoin, quote unquote, of its time. No, this crypto and particularly, I think, stable coins are a great solution. You cannot access to dollars, you can access to this stuff. I think that could happen in other areas. Maybe I'm thinking in terms of traditional problems like inflation and so on. If I have to pick two main economic issues, that would be inflation and this huge informal economy. And I think both could be in a way corrected to, to some extent with a new technology. Of course, another area in the world is international transactions. Clearly, crypto is being used because it's much better than the traditional system. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. As regular listeners will know, the six years I spent living in and writing about Argentina greatly influenced how I think about money and frame my views on Bitcoin and blockchain technology. So I thought it would be fun to delve into the workings of Argentina's, let's say, colorful financial history to explore why it's so prone to crises and whether or not crypto is a solution for its citizens. I've found that addressing the questions that this technology asks through the lens of Argentina has helped me think about how these ideas fit into the wider world. First, some personal context. My time in Argentina was bookended by experiences that left a strong impression on me. When I first arrived in early 2003, I took a walk down Avenida Florida in Buenos Aires' financial district, where the branches of international banks like HSBC and Santander were boarded up with impenetrable steel walls and were covered with graffiti that screamed vitriol at the bankers inside. This was during El Corralón, a freeze on bank customers' savings which had also been forcibly converted from dollars into devalued Argentine pesos at a very unfavorable rate. The government had taken that draconian measure a year earlier to prevent a run on the financial system before it took the desperate move of abandoning the Argentine pesos one-to-one -one peg to the dollar. Seven years later, Argentina was experiencing the other extreme, a battle with inflation as the now depegged peso was falling rapidly. To stem that hemorrhaging, the government had imposed capital control. That led to a harrowing experience when I tried to take the proceeds of a property sale, our life savings, out of the country and back to the US to where I'd moved my family. The full gripping story appears in Paul Vineyard's and my book, The Age of Cryptocurrency. This is Argentina's sad history. It lurches from crisis to crisis in a somewhat predictable cycle of more or less every 10 years. That ongoing financial failure has taken a country that's blessed with rich natural and human resources 
from being the seventh richest in the world at the start of the last century to around 75th now. Why? Is this a problem with Argentine culture or is it structural? Look, I love Argentines. I made some of my very best friendships there. These were people who, when they give you a hug, an abrazo, it's a bear hug, it's fuerte. These are people with whom I would trust my life and who would trust theirs with me. Trust, that's a key word in this conversation. Because the flip side is that Argentines have a deeply cynical mistrust in government. Their public institutions are plagued with corruption. A vicious cycle exists where people don't trust the government, regardless of which party is in power. So they find artful ways to avoid paying taxes to it, which means official agencies are underfunded, which in turn breeds corruption and a confiscatory instinct on the part of the government. This only breeds more mistrust among a citizenry that lives under an ever-present threat to their property rights. No wonder Argentines instead form close bonds of trust with friends and family. The country's financial failure, which leaves the sovereign perennially short of cash, manifests repeatedly in the failure of its money. There's a sense that the social covenant that's supposed to exist between a government and its people, the foundation for trust in a fiat currency, is broken irreparably. It should be no surprise then that Argentina has been a fertile ground for crypto revolutionaries. There is a heavy Argentine presence among the Bitcoin old guard. People like Zappo founder Wences Casares, Rootstock's Diego Gutierrez and Sergio Lerna, and Ripio's Sebastian Serrano, who joined us on this show a few months back. Demand for Bitcoin, stablecoins, and other blockchain services is now surging in Argentina. But does the solution to the country's problems lie in the radical ideas of cryptocurrencies and blockchain governance? Should money and resources be managed collectively over a decentralized protocol instead of by a government that no one trusts? Or is it more important that Argentines put their efforts into building the accountable government they deserve? To address those questions, we have two more fabulous guests. Lucas Yatz is a professor of economics at the University of Tocuato de Tela in Buenos Aires, who served as the Argentine Central Bank's vice president between late 2015 and mid-2018. Santiago Siri is an Argentine-born developer and early crypto enthusiast. He is the founder of Democracy Earth, which offers a radical new blockchain-based approach to the governance of communities, projects, and resources. Concept very much informed by his experience with Argentina's less than perfect system of government. Before we get to them, let's bring in my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So again, I want people to read my book so they can get that little sort of story there, as always trying to plug that book. But (laughs) I will say one more little thing about that real estate transaction. And this is something that most people don't realize that when you, certainly back then, I'd love to know from our guests whether this is still the case, but back then, any real estate transaction was in cash. And when I mean that, I mean literally cash, like it is in $100 notes. And it turns out that $280,000 is a lot smaller than I thought it would be when this power was pushed towards me. But it's just incredible. And it's a manifestation of this sort of mistrust that people have in the banking system. The irony is you're taking that money and you're putting it back into a bank, but sort of the deep rooted mistrust. I mean, a lot of people will store their savings in notes, in dollar notes, not in their local currency, because that's what they have historically trusted in dollars, and then put them in a safety deposit box that's managed by a bank. They don't put it in the bank account, they put it in a safety deposit box in the bank. And it's just like that level of mistrust, it, it really speaks to this problem. And I think this is something that folks who live in a different place where the financial system works, that's why I don't think they understand some of the problems that people talk about when they talk about Bitcoin and everything else. 
in a way that many Argentines do. So I just want to put that out there from, from you because, you know, we're always having this conversation with people who would say, you've got to think about it from the perspective of people in different places. Well, that's right. And, and a lot of these, you know, what we always say also is that it's very context dependent and what a, a, a digital currency or crypto can actually address is going to vary, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, context to context. So I think you're right. I think that you know, there's kind of like a, a running American joke about, you know, the people that store their money under their mattress or, you know, or whatnot is kind of the common trope here. But, you know, most people don't really do that. It's kind of like a, a joke and it's almost like a, a funny thing to, to laugh about that, oh, you know, who would, who would have that response to, to things rather than putting their money into a, into a bank if they had access to a bank. But this is certainly not unique to Argentina. You know, and there, there are plenty of countries that have experienced hyperinflation or have uh, distrust in banks for, for other reasons that are quite profound. I mean, like right now, right, we have what's happening in Turkey. So oh, we yeah. had, I think, what is it, the third central bank governor in, since 2019 coming in? And there has been a movement already that is that we can actually track uh, towards crypto because people are frustrated by what's happening uh, in Turkey and it's causing them to lose faith in their central bank. So it is more of a there but for the grace, you know, go I kind of situation. And I think that uh, while this might not be something that, that resonates with many Americans or, or even many Europeans, although Greece, you know, comes to mind as another example. I think it's important to recognize that, you know, this is not out of the realm of possibility, you know, for, for any country. And it's important to, to learn a lot and to explore some of these examples and how societies respond to them. Yes. I mean, but for the grace of God, I think it's a great way to, to frame it. For viewers, listeners out there, check out the article by Sandali Handagama on, on Turkey's current situation. I think it's quite illuminating on how these things are working in right now in a place like that. Okay, let's bring our guests in. So first of all, Santiago, to you, I'd kind of like you to just give me a little bit of a story about your journey from maybe a frustrated Argentine citizen. I think you created something called El Partido de la Red, the party of the net, of the internet, to now this creation of yours, Democracy Earth. Why did you end up there? Why did you end up in a world where crypto, blockchain, these you know, DAOs, these ideas you saw as the solution to the problems that you'd experienced in Argentina itself? So ten, almost 10 years ago, with a group of colleagues and friends, we figured how can we improve Argentina's democracy and how can we use technology to improve the current state of affairs with our government? And our first instinct was, well, let's do a political party. The idea of this party was to propose candidates for Congress that would vote every bill in Congress, according to the will of the people, uh, using some kind of online tool where people could get logged in and vote. That was almost a Quixotesque uh, quest to, to do a political party in Latin America, to collect the signatures, to get the rights to run for an election, to do the campaigning, uh, to count the votes, to, to make sure you have enough people so they don't steal all your votes. And a lot of uh, different aspects of dealing with the political system in Argentina, which sadly, you know, uh, it, it is very corrupt, very, very difficult to deal with. Throughout that process, uh, this is 2012, it was also for me, at least the very first years, discovering something like Bitcoin, discovering the power of cryptocurrency, of these new technologies that are building a new model that makes this existing model obsolete. As we face the challenge of what is it required to really be able to deploy a democracy in cyberspace, in the internet, it was clear that you know, the technology wasn't exactly there. But over the last 10 years, since 2012 at least, 
I can tell you that I've done pilots of digital democracy all over the world with different kinds of organizations that range from political parties to government to nonprofit organizations. And lately, with the rise of smart contracts, Ethereum, distributed autonomous organizations, some of the primitives that uh, are useful to start thinking about a feasible digital democracies that can be deployed anywhere there's an internet connection is starting to become a more tangible and a more real thing. So in the past uh, six years with the Democracy Earth Foundation, uh, we have been uh, thoroughly researching these technologies and it's what keeps me optimistic at the end of the day of what we can achieve with these new technologies like Ethereum and, and smart contracts. That's extremely interesting hearing that journey. Lucas, I'd like to turn that same question to you. You know, you've come more from a traditional economic background. Uh, you worked within the system. And I'm curious to get to hear a little bit about your journey and to hear your perspectives on things like cryptocurrency, maybe Bitcoin specifically. How do you think they play into the solution here? Yeah. Hi, everybody. So I came in contact with, I would say, digital money in general, not only crypto, through the central bank, because when we were the central bank, one of our priorities was digitizing currency. This could mean digitizing through traditional banks, through fintechs, or eventually crypto. But basically, we did a lot of work and a lot of reforms by particularly dismantling a monopoly in payments that was in Argentina belonging to the banks, so like an antitrust uh, process against this monopoly. And in many ways, trying to generate you know, network effects in, in the payment system. For instance, in Argentina, you have a unique system of aliases, nicknames, either for fintech accounts or bank accounts with instant transfers between all of them. And that has been very transformative because um, some fintechs have been very successful in you know, bringing people into the digital system. People used to call that before bancarizar, you know, having people have a bank account. But now it's not only banks, it's other actors, particularly in Argentina, you have Mercado Pago, which is, you know, an affiliate of Mercado Libre, a big, you know, e-commerce company and other, other big companies in, in fintech. So along that road, you know, I, I met, you know, people like Santi and other crypto enthusiasts, which have always been very appealing for me. I think really that crypto just have a chance in Argentina of doing more than what it can do in a, let's say, in a normal place. Mike, you, you, you told about your problems, you know, when you wanted to take your money abroad. So in Argentina, it's not only inflation, that of course, inflation is basically a rejection of the national currency. So it devalues and devalues and the government prints and prints more. It's also, you know, currency controls. This means that basically the peso, our currency, is not always convertible to other currencies. So basically you have pesos in your bank account. You cannot change that freely into other currencies. So you have to go to all sorts of either to the Florida street you mentioned, Michael, or other places to change cash in pesos for cash in dollars and so on. And also, I think another important thing is taxes. As you mentioned, Michael, also, we have a big informal economy. So the government tries to, you know, has to tax more heavily than in other countries, basically digital transactions. Fiat digital currency in Argentina is taxed very highly. Maybe, you know, a merchant sells for 100, he receives 90 because of all the taxes. So I think that crypto, you know, at least in my view, 
is attractive as a potential solution through, I would say, these three problems, because it can have, you know, it can be a stable currency. It is, you know, freely convertible because restrictions normally apply to, to you know, buying other currencies, but crypto is co considered a digital asset in the Argentine leg legislation and as in other places. So you can freely convert pesos to these assets. And also because you wouldn't pay, you know, transaction taxes, basically, which is very bad for digitization in, in general. So, you know, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about the idea that Argentina or Argentinians that, as you mentioned, Michael, uh, something we do have as a, as a comparative advantage, I would say, is human capital. So there are a lot of people like Santi or that look at Santi as a, as a role model and great programmers and so on. So I think that maybe we could, you know, get out of this labyrinth we are in uh, with our currency through crypto. I don't discard that as a potential thing in Argentina. And I do want to get into that after this. I want to get a little deeper into what's happening in terms of the tech ecosystem in Argentina and the possibility that, yeah, it's an opportunity, not a problem, that this is a, an innovation opportunity, if you like, to leapfrog, which I think is the way that the things may go. Before we go there, I want to break down a concept that I referred to in my monologue at the beginning there, this idea of what normally happens in a fiat currency world where you have this covenant of trust, right? This idea that currency remains stable and, it, and everybody gets to use it because there's a relationship between the government and its people. And I really do think that part of the Argentine problem is that there's a breakage there. And it's one that runs deep, 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 going back for many, many, many decades, right? We don't even know quite know where it all began. And therefore, to sort of ask the question, you know, is it reasonable to think that a blockchain, a decentralized protocol, whereby all of that is managed by this decentralized system, rather than a government, is the way to go? Or, or whether or not in doing so, we undermine something really fundamental about self-determination, you know, the role that a government plays in in representing its people and looking after the public interest in that regard. That no matter what, Argentina still has to build those institutions. I'd like to drill into that. So, Santi, you've got a radical idea with this open earth. Do you literally think that you can sort of do away with these institutions and create a digital version of government effectively? When it comes to interacting with governments in Argentina, you know, I, I kind of become, you know, a little bit famous within the community of politicians uh, over there for suggesting back in 2014 that we should put at least 1% of the national reserves uh, in Bitcoin. Back then, Bitcoin was around $600. So now that it's almost uh, $60,000, <laughs> suddenly when government sees that Elon Musk is putting 1.5 billion in Bitcoin. And now they're actually like asking me more questions than they <laughs> you're, you're a hero now. You're a visionary now. I still believe in the basic fundamentals of how Bitcoin works as a store of value. Ultimately, it's not up to the Argentine government. It's up to every Argentinian to embrace these technologies. You know, when I think about trying to change the system from within, I think that in order to be successful in that system, you'll probably end up being changed by the system first. So I'm more uh, bullish about, you know, what you just mentioned, the new generation of engineers, developers. Argentina has uh, a particular uh, uh, talent when it comes to high tech. It's the one country that produced the largest amount of unicorns in Latin America. I live in Spain now, and Argentina has far more unicorns than Spain, which is a developed nation. The new generation of, of programmers, it's 
the children that grew up in hyperinflationary Argentina, the children that grew up in the Corralito, as you mentioned, it's the children that have suffered the trauma of financial crisis over and over again throughout their lives. And now that they are in their adult life, uh, you see a lot of innovative uh, talent building technology with Ethereum, with smart contracts, with Bitcoin, that it's global class. Uh, it's really for the first time I see entrepreneurs that are not trying to replicate maybe a business model from the U.S. and bring it to Latin America. But for the first time, we're seeing technology companies that are doing first-class innovation, you know, building global solutions that are very competitive in the global ecosystem of, of DeFi and, and cryptocurrency. And that's definitely not a coincidence. It's, it's a consequence of being raised in a country that, you know, etymologically, Argent means silver. Yeah. The only country in the world named after a commodity. We have 200 years of history of being obsessed with finance some way or another. Right. Maybe now it's our time to shine. It is true. I always, I always felt like there was just the whole country was full of financial experts. You figure, how come they can't all come together and find a solution? <laughs> but like you'd have these taxi drivers who knew how to play the arbitrage game between the dollar and, and the, you know, they'd fly to, they'd go to Uruguay and they'd sort of get their casino chips and change them for dollars and then bring them back across on the, on the bookie boss. So it's fascinating that you've got that pool of human resource. Let's get to that in a moment though. I really want to talk about how do you build on top of this, but Lucas, Santi was talking about a solution from outside the system. You are equally passionate about the need to change, but you've really, really sort of focused more, I think, on, on working within the system. Is it possible? We, we live with high inflation in Argentina for 75 years now. High meaning at least more than 30% a year and with some years of 2,000%, mm. with the only exception of 10 years during the 90s where the currency was pegged one-to-one -one with the dollar. So basically, we only avoided inflation when we almost didn't have our own currency. It was pegged to the dollar. So uh, going back to, to the question you made originally, Michael, would it be you know, desirable for Argentina to have a good currency? It would. Is it possible? I'm not sure. While we don't have one, first, we lose a lot in terms of economic growth and so on. High inflation is very bad for the economy. And second, people use other means anyway. If it isn't crypto, they use dollars, as, as you have described. So what would be the problem of really having something from outside? You know, I have the idea that Argentina, you, you know, if you want to replace a national currency, probably Bitcoin is not good because of its instability. Even stable coins, dollar stable coins are not perfect for emerging economies because sometimes you need your currency to, you know, to move a little bit. Once we, you know, chatted uh, through Twitter with Santi about, for instance, like a South American peg. So you could easily build, you know, on Ethereum or whatever, a peg to, you know, stable currencies of South America. And that could be perfect for Argentina, for instance. So I think that, you know, maybe we're not that far from that solution being available. I think another point on top of the, you know, economic, uh, the monetary policy of, of, a, of, a, of a crypto for Argentina, another point is, you know, the interaction with the fiat system. I think that has to be very smooth for, you know, crypto to work. For instance, in the first stages, you would need something you don't have not right now, which is being able to pay from your crypto in your, in your wallet to a peso account directly, let's say, through a QR code, which are becoming increasingly popular in Argentina. So I think that gradually you could have, you know, maybe two currencies in your, in your wallet or three or four or whatever, 
some transactions made in peso, but instantly converted to pesos from that crypto. So we have to think about interoperability with the fiat system for the transition. I think that's crucial for any project of this sort to work. But I don't see it as something that's, you know, completely far away from reality. It could really happen, I think. One thing I think about a lot, and and one of the reasons I think we've seen so much early adoption or open-mindedness, let's say, to things like cryptocurrency, uh, Bitcoin even more specifically, uh, is because there's almost a, a cultural readiness. And so part of that is having a certain kind of tech ecosystem, right? So Santi, you described how there is this very flourishing, robust tech ecosystem, unicorns, et cetera. There, there's a very tech forward mentality in Argentina. Uh, secondly, I think there's this concept that Michael, you raised about there's already this sort of cross-border arbitrage people were doing kind of physically, right? Like taking cash and doing what they had to do to make things work for themselves and their families. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Do you feel that one of the reasons that cryptocurrency resonates so strongly with many Argentines is because there is this kind of mental readiness that people have. It's similar to how, you know, e-money, you know, sort of digital wallets really flowed where there was a lot of already kind of e-money or and people were largely already on their mobile devices. You know, you kind of had acceleration of some of these things because the mental leap was really pretty minimal. So I'd love to just get your comments on that and how you see that playing out as a force. You know, people are very used to, if you have pesos more than you need, you need to buy something, some other currency. So that's something that's in every Argentine mind, okay? Not for poor people who cannot save, but for any other people that have, you know, something uh, left. So the, you know, conceptual step from buying dollars to buying, let's say, DAI or a USDT or digital dollar or whatever, it's very small, maybe smaller than yeah. in other countries. And the fact that there are currency controls now means that it's not easy to buy dollars through digital means. I mean, you have to have a broker account, buy a bond, sell a bond. It's easier to buy a digital dollar asset in crypto. So young people who are digitized but don't want pesos, they see this uh, you know, as a better option. That's why it works, you know, mm-hmm. at least in Argentina, I think. That's why it's getting really popular. Hmm. Santi, what are your thoughts? I agree. You know, I was trained uh, since my birth by my father to never trust the Argentine peso, regardless of the political color of the government. Mm. Uh, Not even during the 90s, where one peso was worth one dollar. And I think that that's the common story on every middle class home in Argentina. To me, the exciting thing is that, uh, you know, we have now also a a new generation of builders uh, from Argentina. Companies like Open Zeppelin, uh, RSK, Kleros, uh, Decentraland, all of these interesting uh, decentralized finance experiments that are trying to explore new ideas around the property, new ideas around cash, new ideas around currency, and, and the quality of the code and the quality of what is being produced by this new generation of programmers, to me, is, is a very optimistic note of what can get built. I'm a big proponent of, you know, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. To me, it's incredible that we have, you know, the primitives to start building better systems of governance and better systems, better financial systems. There's absolutely nothing to lose for the average Argentine. Everyone has distrust for the government. Everyone has distrust and not, not distrust, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. <laughs> 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 on a national scale. On a national scale. <laughs> really like that. It's the taxi driver and it's absolutely everyone in the streets that knows this and feels this. 
So that's a huge opportunity. It's an incredibly fertile ground. To me, a surprising thing, just 10 days ago, I, I launched a project called Proof of Humanity. It's a decentralized identity system on Ethereum. You know, when we launched this, obviously it's a, it's a system for advanced users, for users that you know, might know a little bit about how to use Ethereum, have a MetaMask wallet, maybe they use DeFi a couple of times. And to my surprise, the onboarding of new users I have been doing in the last 10, 10 days, especially from Argentines that took all of the steps, there's a thirst for trying out these new technologies that makes countries like Argentina an incredibly fertile ground. One of the chief smart contract developers of DAI and MakerDAO was an Argentine, uh, Mariano Conti. And the fact that we have that kind of talent there, to me, is an incredible aspect that keeps me optimistic in a country that has systematically trained me to remain pessimistic. Michael, if I may add to your previous question, that you, know, you said you try to change things from within. Maybe it's, uh, it could be of interest. Sheila before mentioned the case of Turkey where the central bank governor was sacked. So basically the lira dropped. Something very similar happened to us in Argentina. Right now, people in Argentina are talking about the book by President Macri, which was our previous president. We served during Macri's presidency at the central bank. And there was a famous you know, episode called 28D, which is December 28, which significantly it's Fool's Day in Argentina where the government decided to change the inflation targets. And Macri, in his books, says this was because we wanted lower interest rates. So basically, the market reacted to that in a very you know, sensitive market with mistrust. And then we had a currency uh, you know, run and a depreciation in 2018. So even what people think is a reasonable government wanted basically to use monetary policy, not for stabilizing prices, but for something else, let's say to you know, improve the economy. Mm. So it's really hard. I mean, if at that point we had problems to build trust, it's going to be hard in the future. Such a key point because, you know, I mentioned at the outset as well, because of that cycle that's been going on for so long where, you know, people not paying their taxes, as you said, like you got pesos, you immediately go and put it in something else. It constantly defunds the government, which then leads them to this, I think, confiscatory approach. And whether or not that's through sort of some sort of abusive tax system, or it is literally through debasing the currency. It is a weapon that they feel compelled to use because they can't. There's no other way for them in some respects to get the funding they need, right? This is sort of this vicious cycle. Well, again, one of the reasons why this conversation is so interesting, like can you come at this from outside the system and change it? But it also speaks to something that you mentioned, Lucas, that I think both of you can speak of because you said that it is an idea that had come from Santi, which is the idea of a peg. Now, a peg in Argentine history has a certain... <laughs> residents, because it was a successful peg, the dollar peso ped for half of its life, and then it became a disaster. The idea that it was actually a straitjacket, right? That it just they couldn't get out of it. And the only solution eventually was to break it. And the crisis was a massive one. How would a digital peg work? And, and how would it avoid the same problem? Maybe something since you apparently were the author of this idea, talk us through your idea of what a new, better peg would look like. It's interesting. I, I've been living in Europe for, for two years now, and, and Spain, in many ways, is uh, very, very similar to Argentina. And, you know, many consider that the success of the economic success that Spain really had after, you know, many years of also some economic trouble in history in the 20th century is the fact that they, the Spanish government does not control the euro. 
Lucas is probably a much better expert than me to talk about this, but there's this famous trilemma in, in, in monetary policy that where you have a currency that can have free floating price, uh, convertibility to other assets or to other currencies, and independent governance. And you usually only get two out of those three. Uh, turns out that having an independent entity governing the, the, the asset from the political government Theoretically, having an independent central bank from the central government is actually a very good thing. In Argentina, to achieve that has been extremely hard because the president of the country usually you know, appoints the president of the central bank and there's no independent in between the two entities. So maybe thinking like a supranational entity, you know, starting a, a South American bank might not be doable by an average citizen. But you can start a South American central bank using crypto. And you just pick a basket of stable coins in reales, Brazilian reales, and Uruguayan pesos, and um, some Argentine pesos. I wouldn't put too much of those in the basket. Uh, and try to create a, a different kind of peg that is closer to the reality of developing nations. But it's still something that it's not uh, directly controlled by central government. And maybe that might do the trick uh, for having a, a stable currency <laughs> in, in a country like ours. A problem, Michael, with a peg done by the central bank is that normally it's not fully credible because in, that, in some state of affairs, you get out of the peg. That would be written in the algorithm of monetary policy, which is basically, as Santi said, this is peg to Real, Chile, and whatever. And you could adopt that, you know, currency for, for use in Argentina, first by, you know, citizens and later by the government, maybe, or maybe by a local government, for instance. Think about, you know, provinces that are close to Brazil and Paraguay and Uruguay. Why not have a provincial currency that's totally crypto floating with the dollar fixed to basically the regional basket? I mean, it could be a way. We have to think out of the box because the problem we have is huge. We've had it for 75 years and the damage it does to every Argentine and particularly poor people is, you know, really incredible. So, mm -hmm. so we have to, you know, use these new weapons, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think you put forth a number of different modalities that could be quite powerful. And, and I'm curious, what's the appetite of the current government and the current central bank? Where are we politically, you know, in this and in terms of uh, their willingness to think about things like this? I say we're very far. We have, you know, currency controls that are getting harder as we speak. Let's say an exporter from Argentina gets paid $1,000 and he has to change them to pesos at the official rate, which basically means like a tax wedge of 70%. So we are very, very far from a mentality that has to do with, you know, building a stable currency. Uh, inflation has been around 4% a month for the last six months. So that's basically, you know, mm -hmm. impossible. Sounds like there's a lot of room for those, uh, for people to work uh, in parallel outside the system, right? And to really have a parallel system that is accommodating, is recognizing some of the immense benefits that being in Argentina presents, whether it's, again, this kind of cultural readiness on the part of users, whether it's the tremendous tech talent that we've talked about. There are a lot of advantages uh, to being in Argentina and trying to build this kind of system. And it looks to me, there's an interesting insider-outsider problem with all these things, right? There's this ongoing question about legacy infrastructure, legacy systems, and the new crypto ecosystem, how do they connect to each other? Do they not? And it's interesting to think of an example where 
there's just such different points of view, you know, from the population about the need and about the problem and from the official elected, at least leaders uh, of the government of, and of the major institutions. And when you have a divide that is as dramatic, I think, as what you're describing or what we're kind of seeing in Argentina, uh, it really lends itself to the concept that maybe the whole discussion on interoperability that is something that takes up a lot of airtime in other parts of the world isn't necessarily even, even relevant, but it's something it's pretty powerful to think about. I actually hearing the way that you framed all of that, Lucas, you know, where does it end, right? Because it's this constant tension, you know, doubling down on capital controls and then eventually reaching a point where it just has to break. And that seems to me like the Argentine story in a nutshell. But I think it's worth exploring deeper because I don't think it's just an Argentine story. I, th I think it's a fundamental problem with how the global economy itself is. Argentina is just like a canary in the coal mine almost. It has the symptoms and the, and the circumstances are a bit more extreme than other places, but it really does reflect, I think, real problems around the world. And we keep talking about Europe, right? The, the, the mismatch there between the currencies and their political situations and, and so forth. So, I mean, let's look at Argentina first, right? Where does it go? Do we have a breakup? And then out of that breakup, another major, major crisis, what comes next, right? Is this the chance, Santi, to come in with democracy earth solution or, or something else? There are some famous Twitter pundits that, uh, you know, advocate for a total crash. <laughs> you know, some well-known economists or, uh, you know, Twitter panderers uh, that, that, that push that idea, like, let's start building something from scratch. What I see at the end of the day is that ultimately with technology in general, actually, you know, there's... Uh, the, the digital divide, the digital gap, it's really not socioeconomical at all. You know, uh, if, if you walk slums in Argentina, you will find every teenager using a smartphone. But uh, it's really generational. And we have a generation in power today that was born into the 20th century and, and still is heavily influenced by the, the history of Argentina, which is uh, it's very tragic in many ways, and, and it's hard to overcome those tragedies as a society, and there's still big divides and big polarization. But it's really that generation, it's, it's completely unaware of computers, the internet, and crypto is directly on a different galaxy. Uh, so uh, an old uh, colleague, uh, you know, from the, the founder of the Pirate Party once told me that in politics, every big change is uh, very slow because it really takes one generation to die for the next generation to take over. But when that happens, even though the changes move at glacial speeds very slowly, when the change happens, it's a strenuous effect. So now I see that there's a generation under 40. I just tried to be under 37, so I'm trying to remain. <laughs> but maybe it's under 35 or maybe it's under 30. And this generation is, is digital, understands, you know, they barely watch television. They are completely into this stuff like crypto, Ethereum, DeFi. They use these things. They get it. They are very fast. They explain it to me. And the generation in power, they are not trained to think about the economy in other terms than the traditional inflation or dollar discussions that we had for ages. So I, I think that there's going to be a point somewhere, hopefully maybe in this decade, maybe in the next one, but there's going to be a point of, of some kind of tectonic shift when the new generation start getting more responsibilities and with the knowledge and experience and know-how that these new generations are gathering uh, with technology, they might be able to push changes in, in a way that 
maybe bring some new light to the ideas being debated in the traditional arena. It's a really interesting perspective because it is actually a much more optimistic view than the doomsday one you were talking about, right? The idea that we have to be nihilistic and destroy it and build from the bottom, that it actually happens through generational change, then you reach a tipping point and it's a tech generational thing, which I think is really interesting. Is that It does look more optimistic for Argentina because until now, it's always just been this boom-bust cycle where you do break everything and you start again, but they can't seem to start with anything other than the other failed models. Lucas, do you see that? In a way, Michael, I think that uh, change can happen even faster than Santi's saying. Maybe I say this because I feel discriminated against because I'm 47 and I want to see the change. <laughs> hey, I'm over 50, see- <laughs> so I'm the, I'm, the re- I'm the real old fart in this place. <laughs> and I want to see the changes. But for instance, yeah, this is a debate we've had with Santi on, uh, on Twitter. You know, the change in terms of digitization and in financial inclusion through fintechs in Argentina has been amazing. Like you have now, you know, out of population of 45 million, you have around 20 million wallets, you know, there of different types of institutions. So I think that to the extent that these new technologies actually solve problems that are close to people, they will be successful. Clearly, for Argentine savers, for instance, you know, these crypto and particularly, I think, stable coins are a great solution. You cannot access to dollars you can access to the, this stuff. I think that could happen in other areas. Maybe I'm thinking in terms of traditional problems that Santi was mentioning, like inflation and so on. But I think that for Argentina, I mean, if I have to pick two main economic issues, that would be inflation. And as Michael said, you know, this huge informal economy. And I think both could be in a way um, corrected to, to some extent with a new technology. So, of course, another area in the world is international transactions. Clearly, crypto is being used because it's much better than the traditional system. So where it really is better than the traditional system, the change happens and it's fast. I think it's really a challenge for us, younger and older Argentines, to really use these new technologies in ways that are closer and easy for people to use. User experience, and this is crucial, I think. I think interoperability between crypto and fiat, it's a huge topic for this to work. So, I mean, I've seen Santi's project of, you know, uh, proof of humanity and so on. And at some point I, I said, well, this could solve some problems. You know, I'm not sure, but it's really promising in terms of, you know, universal basic income and so on. I think the opportunity is really there and people are eager to, you know, adopt these new technologies. We have a, a canvas to experiment new ideas. Uh, and that's unprecedented. The fact that we can try out new ideas, new economic ideas, new social ideas with stuff like Ethereum has, to me, it's mind-blowing. And, and Mike, you mentioned the boom and bust cycles of Argentina and something that it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a nerd for history. I love Argentine history. I read a lot about it. And if you go back a hundred years, the Argentine peso was the strongest currency in the world. The Argentine peso was bought with a 10% premium in the, the stock exchange of London. Mm-hmm. And my, my grandfather used to be an ambassador in the British embassy of Argentina during the Second World War. And he told me stories about how the British came to the embassy desperately trying to buy Argentine pesos in exchange for the British pound. Like the Argentine peso for the first half of the 20th century was the Bitcoin, quote unquote, of its time. There was a famous catchphrase in the 20s that was uh, rich as an Argentine, used to be an extremely wealthy country. 
Then after the Second World War, maybe after the first one, started this process of America trying to keep Argentina in control. You know, that's another <laughs> argument. Yeah. But, you know, we are now at the lowest moment of our history in terms of, you know, financial performance. It cannot get any worse than this right now. Uh, but we used to be at a, at a great place 100 years ago. So maybe the gears of history can work uh, again with us if we are willing to bet for something, you know, think different. You know, like uh, Apple used to say back in the night, <laughs> you can start thinking different and breaking this mold of obsession with inflation and the peso and the dollar. And it's a constant pattern that I've seen my whole life. If we can break that and embrace these new technologies to start experimenting and building new stuff, someone will get it right. And, and, I'm, and I'm positive of, of the talent that is committed to building these things, which is, you know, it's what keeps me optimistic at the end of the day. Although, you know, one novelty we are having now is not only capital flight, which has been, you know, a constant in Argentina, but also human capital flight. Oh, yeah. And, and that's really an issue the last couple of years uh, for different reasons. The basic one is, you know, you don't trust your country and you want to have a better life abroad. So we're seeing a lot of, you know, people leaving the country, which are not, not average people. They belong to, you know, more education and abilities and so on. And also rich people, which is bad because there has been a, a new tax on wealth, very high, supposedly a one-time tax, but you never know. So now, you know, half of Argentina's GDP is in Uruguay, basically in the, mm -hmm. in the neighboring country. And that's, of course, has an effect on the economy because, you know, people who live abroad then tend to invest less in the country. So this is like a new stage, which, you know, I hope can be reverted if there's political change in the horizon, but otherwise it's going to be tough, you know. I'm on the receiving end of that in Madrid. There's a new Argentine entrepreneur, very successful entrepreneurs are arriving to Spain to stay here and live here. And the Argentine diaspora is growing uh, like crazy, like the Venezuelan diaspora, which is also very big. It's sad to think that the country is failing on its uh, intellectuals, its thinkers, its builders, its entrepreneurs, the people that can contribute and, and build progress in the country. It's a matter of concern and, and it's a very real phenomenon right now. Well, I imagine some of that is rooted in you know, the, the PTSD that we sort of joked about, but it's very real. I mean, generation after generation experiencing kind of this trauma, being unable to trust basic institutions and the government and getting to a point of fatigue. But what I'm curious about, it occurs to me, is you know, you've really described almost the, the dream landscape, like the dream you know, fertile soil for crypto to really flourish. Uh, you have so many different, I think, necessary inputs. You do have technical talent and know-how. You have a, a tech-forward population. You have cultural and mental readiness. The leap we talked about is not very high, right, to get to kind of use. So why do you think that you're not seeing this massive, massive crypto ecosystem and people are just abandoning you know, the peso completely? What do you think are the barriers to adoption that you're still seeing? Like, what are those last hurdles given the incredible, how much is on the plus side of the ledger? What is, what is preventing massive, massive wide-scale adoption? The opinion that still for transactions, you know, for day-to-day -day transactions, at least some cryptocurrencies are expensive and not as fast, at least some of them, as the fiat digital system. So I think that's one hurdle Of course, there are some that if, if you have this coin that's pegged to Bitcoin, but it's not Bitcoin, but it's complicated. So yeah. basically, I think, I think that one of the challenges of the crypto world 
is to having you know a really very smooth you know way of transacting and buying you know an ice cream in the shop very easily so that's one thing and then of course the network effect is very hard to build if 10% of the population use crypto there are still nine transactions that are not being paid in, in crypto no. in whatever so the ice cream shop would say oh I, i'm not using this so it's not easy and this is you know in general in payments every new payment system even of the fiat world let's say qr payments well they need a huge effort for it to be successful the fact that in crypto you have it's it's a world that it's really free and atomized in a way so there are a lot of actors sometimes it isn't that hard to build that network effect so that's i think a second thing my point of view is that you need this transition i was mentioning where people have crypto in their wallets and with that same wallet they are paying for their groceries maybe in pesos instantly you know converted from crypto so that would be i think a transition phase that you need to go through i think yeah i agree with lucas i always describe blockchains as computing in the 1970s paying a few dollars uh, to interact with ethereum is a very expensive operation yeah. in argentina Five dollars is a, it's actually a lot of money in pesos so let's hope that uh, whether it's ethereum 2 or whether it's uh, some of the other you know new proof of stake scalable blockchains out there that we can really go from the 20 25 transactions per second to thousands of transactions per second and that will have an enormous impact so today we have a picture but i would say like let's not stick with that picture let's look at the whole movie and try to build into that line of progress that technology is bringing in and the, the opportunity is definitely there and Today, still, there are some important hurdles if, if we want to make sure that these technologies are inclusive and can reach every, every part of society. All right. On that note, guys, I'm going to wrap this up. This has just been absolutely fascinating. As you know, and you can tell, I'm always just energized when I'm talking about Argentina. And the point is that even though it is a bit of a tragic story, I always feel like I learned so much about the world when I was in Argentina, because I think that these experiences speak a lot more to the human condition uh, and the whole sort of idea of civilization and where it comes from. And what I always found was that some of the, my best educators were these sort of rich raconteurs and, and people who really explain things in colorful, insightful ways that you don't really find anywhere else. Uh, hence my enthusiasm for having you both on the show. So thank you very, very much. This is absolutely fantastic. I, I would have loved to have just kept going and going. Lucas Yach, uh, Santiago Siri, uh, we'll have to have you back at some point, but uh, it was it was a great pleasure. And for everybody else, uh, stay tuned again next week. We'll be back with another Money Reimagined. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Lucas Yach, and Santiago Siri. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Mousseau, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.